All right, Anderson, thank you very much. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. Uh, there's big news on our watch tonight. Rudy Giuliani and the former president that he served are potentially entering the gravest legal jeopardy they have faced. And Giuliani has chosen the most dangerous course in dealing with it. He has decided to take the matter public and challenge a Department of Justice that has been looking at him for two years. Raided in the morning... Uh, because I, well, I'm going to destroy the evidence. I've known about this for two years. E- evidence is exculpatory. It proves that the president and I and all of us are innocent. They're the ones who are committing. It's like pro- it's like projection. They're committing the crimes. And uh, second, I can tell you, I, I never, ever represented a foreign national. The search warrant is purportedly based on one single failure to file for representing a Ukrainian national or official that I never represented. So he chose to appear on a show that Fox itself has argued is not to be taken seriously. And yet he made very serious allegations. He said that the warrant was illegal, that his electronics will exculpate him and Trump, that the Department of Justice spied on him. And that this is about the Bidens and politics. And as you just heard, he never represented any foreign entity or agent or any of the interests in violation of the law. There is a reason that attorneys for time in memoriam have not wanted people to discuss a case. Because not only will those words echo into the ears of people who are now being challenged to prove they know what they're doing. But there are implications about why it's being done, though it started under the Trump administration, and what they can prove. These are not inactive enemies. Warrants like this, here's what we know. They are obtained usually deep into a case. Why? Because prosecutors have to be able to convince a judge that they know things and that they are likely to find proof of a crime if they get what they want pursuant to the warrant. Now, as we saw with other Trumpers like Manafort and Cohen, charges were not far behind this kind of move. Now, the question becomes charges about what? The New York Times reports tonight that at least one of the warrants was seeking evidence related to the ousting of Marie Yovanovitch from her role as ambassador to Ukraine. You'll remember how impressive she was uh, when she was discussed during the impeachment hearings and what she was about in her job, what she liked, what she didn't like. Trump removed her from her post. Why? The speculation was, from Giuliani and others, that she had stood in the way of his shakedown efforts to smear Biden. And that is what this may all be about. What Giuliani, perhaps with the knowledge and participation of Trump and others, did for Ukraine and its agents to get information and assistance on the Bidens, real or fake. We also know that Giuliani did not hide these efforts. He openly went to Ukraine as the president's lawyer, or so he said. You'll see why I qualify that in a moment. He said he was going to get information, including information from a man that U.S. intelligence says is an active Russian agent, a man known as Andrei Durkash. 
And we know that Giuliani was completely aware of what U.S. intel thought of this guy and that Trump was as well. And that Trump administration intel services wanted him to know that what this man was telling him and what he was repeating about the Bidens was known to be propaganda that Russia wanted out there. And we know that he knew all of this because we confronted Giuliani about it here. But Nate, why would you even meet with this guy? It has to do guy? with It has to do with direct witnesses. I, 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 I interviewed him because he had additional information. What he gave me was a was a document from the Ukrainian government going back to January of 2017, saying that $5.3 billion in foreign aid is unaccounted for. Yeah, except he is called by our government to be a Russian operative and a propaganda pusher. Please, please let me finish. All right, go ahead. Two people. He went on to say, yes, I know. I don't believe them about that. It's a key part of it. So he knew. He didn't believe. He dismissed But he also says, hold, that the information he was giving, he was well, well informed that it was coming from Durkash. And he knew the concerns about it. And he did it anyway. Now, what did Trump know about these efforts and how did he assist? If so, Trump has changed his story. Not surprising. Most recently, Trump said nice things about Giuliani on Fox. But listen to this and then think about what wasn't said. Listen. Rudy Giuliani is a great patriot. He does these things. He just loves this country. And they raid his apartment. It's like uh, so unfair. He does these things. What things? No detail from Trump. Why? Why nothing specific about what was done or not done with Ukraine and why it's okay? Here's why. Because what Trump knew about, he may have empowered and that could be a problem. Okay, now we know that Trump for a while denied knowing what Giuliani was doing there. Do you remember that phase? I don't know what he's doing. He went over there. I don't know why he was there. But eventually he owned his efforts. Listen. Was it strange to send Rudy Giuliani to Ukraine, your personal lawyer? Are you sorry you did that? Not at all. Rudy was a great crime fighter. You know that may be better than anybody. Okay, so you knew he was there. You sent him. He was working for you. Fine. The same man who said in his perfect call with Ukraine's president, they got him impeached, that the president should talk to Giuliani about the Bidens. I will ask him to call you. Remember, it seemed like a quid pro quo, and that what led to the second impeachment. Now, could it lead to a crime or knowledge of a crime? Thereafter, Trump went back to saying he didn't know if Rudy was still his lawyer. Literally, those were his words. I don't know if he's still my lawyer. Think about that and what that it expresses as a state of mind. Ridiculous, but instructive of Trump's wariness of what he may have known was afoot. So what do the denials from Giuliani and the relative silence about the substance from Trump mean? Is this just about lobbying? And what does the timing of the warrant suggest about the progress of the case? Questions that demand better minds, and we have them. Norm Eisen and Mary McCord. Good to have you back. 
Thank you for being with us. Uh, Mary, as I said there, lawyers do not want people talking when they're being investigated for exactly what we saw from Rudy Giuliani tonight. What is the mistake in coming out of the box hot the way he did? Well, people might say things that uh, might incriminate themselves. They might uh, lead investigators to have additional questions about them. They might compromise defenses. I mean, you never really want, as a lawyer, your client to be talking publicly about a case where they are potentially the target of the investigation. So, uh, but Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani speaks when he wants to speak. And obviously we saw that tonight. Did anything he say fall into the category of may come back to haunt him, Mary? Well, I, I didn't I actually didn't hear the entire interview. Um, what actually I what hit me just as the prosecutor uh, I've been for most of my career, but not anymore, was when he said that the uh, search warrant was illegal because there you have to have evidence that someone is trying to destroy evidence in order to get a search warrant, which is, of course, utterly baseless. Uh, search warrants are based on probable cause to believe that evidence of a crime may be found on the items that you seek to search. It has nothing to do with whether you're trying to destroy evidence. So I was a little bit uh, befuddled at that comment coming from someone who had been a prosecutor um, and uh, thought he was really just trying to impact the public and make them think that from the get-go that this was an illegal investigation. The timing, Norm, what does going to the search warrant suggest about where prosecutors are in their process? Um, Chris, thanks for having me back on. A pleasure to be with you with my friend Mary. Uh, what the timing suggests is uh, that the, um, uh, uh, the waterfall of events uh, is, is, is really cascading. We've seen this once before with the investigation of Michael Cohen. These warrants are typically executed well along in an investigation. There was about a four-month gap between uh, the Cohen raid uh, and the denouement, uh, the charges against Cohen. So I think it's, it's, it's certainly more than days away, but it's not years away. And I think it signals a high likelihood of very serious jeopardy for Mr. Giuliani because of the standards you have to satisfy to get a judge to authorize this kind of a warrant. Mm. And look, the atmospherics here aren't good. Mary, that's never been uh, your specific interest. You're about the law, not the politics of it. But he's got his son pleading his case when he obviously doesn't know what he's talking about. He's got Michael Cohen, uh, you know, being a uh, tea leaf reader, you know, one of the, the least credible people you can find. So that's not great for him that that's the company he's in at this point. But there's also a suggestion that, well, this is just about registering as an agent. Um, why do we all assume that that's all this could be? Do you believe that it could only be about registering as an agent? Why would the search warrant involve um, going after Yovanovitch's seat as ambassador? Well, you, you know, a prosecutor does have to list a, a potential crime that they're investigating on a warrant because they have to say that they have to be able to establish that they have probable cause to believe that that crime is or may be being committed and that evidence uh, of that crime will be found on the item sought to be seized and searched. So, but that doesn't mean you have to list every crime, right? And so it's quite possible there are additional crimes that the um, uh, U.S. Attorney's Office and the Department of Justice are investigating. It's also possible that they will find things on the materials that were seized 
uh, with rather whether from Mr. Giuliani or some of the other um, electronic devices that were also seized yesterday, they might find evidence that leads them to additional crimes. So I can't tell you whether that's all or not. But I will say I think it's wrong for people to suggest that a vi violation of the a foreign Agents Registration Act is not a significant crime. I know it's something that people don't know a lot about, but the whole point of registering when you are representing a foreign uh, principal, and in this case, we're really talking, I think, about a foreign government, is so that not only the public, but also the government here, the U.S. government, knows that when you are speaking to them, in, in this case, it, presumably we're talking about when Giuliani was advocating for the ouster of the ambassador that he's do you know it, it, this is hypothetically and allege that he might be doing that on behalf of a foreign government and not just based on his own views. So it's all about transparency so that the people who are sought to be influenced as well as the American public understands what is behind uh, that effort. So I, it's not an insignificant crime. And I would also say that, you know, there's another crime that has an even a stiffer penalty, which is acting as a foreign agent of a uh, foreign government, which is also a potential here if the evidence pans out. And that is a 10-year offense, and it's nothing to uh, belittle or suggest is not important. All right. Uh, Norm, Mary, I got to leave it there, but thank you very much. As the story continues, I'm going to come back to one and both to kind of understand which way this is going. But I do know this. Everybody who's still in that business uh, on the justice side, they say that when you come out and say that they have nothing, that's the biggest mistake you can make when you have a federal investigation against you. Norm, again, Mary, mm -hmm. thank you. So President Biden hit the road today. Uh, he wants to try to sell his plans, and yes, they have a big price tag, but is it about value or is it just about cost? And he's gonna try and take his case to the people. But is that what this is about? Or is it really about just getting his own party in line to do this through reconciliation? And if those are the politics, what is the best path? Yeah, I'm showing you Joe Manchin, the Senator from West Virginia, but there are probably more players in this game. Let's talk about it next. president hit the hustings, trying to go right to you, America, and say, support this nearly $4 trillion pair of economic plans. Let's rebuild the country. Republicans seem set on not putting their names behind any Democratic legislation. But Biden has to worry about his own. And there is a real game afoot. Let's get some insight and bring in one of the masters of the magic, Manu Raju. It's good to see you. Uh, the idea of all Democrats on board, yes, no. Uh, that's going to be hard. At the moment, there are several, not just Joe Manchin, who we'll talk about here, but others who are also concerned about the level of spending that they're talking about, and they want to see a lot of the details. What Joe Biden laid out yesterday was a very expansive role of the federal government and a huge price tag and just a ton of details that Congress has to fill in. On top of the $1.9 trillion that COVID relief has already been approved, we're talking about $1.8 trillion in the American Family Plan, as well as $2.25 trillion for the American Jobs Plan. Those last two measures still need to move through Congress, and there's some negotiation on a bipartisan basis to move forward, but there's also discussion about Democrats trying to cut out Republicans and move it on their own. And if they try to move it on their own, they have to win over West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. 
he has been one of the most effective senators so far in wielding the influence of an individual senator to his, uh, as he wants in the 50-50 Senate, any senator has power to use leverage. Joe Manchin is doing just that. And when I talked to him earlier today, I asked him about his concerns, if he had any, about the role of the government that Joe Biden laid out, and he made clear he is concerned. Are you concerned about this push for a more expansive government? Oh, most certainly. Yeah, I am. But I want to see the details as we talked before. Let's look at what we're doing that can have long-lasting effects. Mm -hmm. The tax reforms, mm -hmm. I think we need to have tax reform. I thought 2017 was the wrong direction to go. But we can't over overreach to the point to where we stymie investments, we stymie basically growth for 2022, 23, 24 and on. So he's sharing a lot of the same concerns that Republicans have. He's concerned about the level of spending. He's concerned that there's already been so much already pumped into the economy yeah. as the economy is improving here. He says they should talk to Republicans, work with Republicans, and he's concerned about the tax increases proposed by Joe Biden. So a lot has to be done to win over Democrats like him, but let alone winning over Republicans and then getting it ultimately on his desk. All right, so let's unpack the two main challenges going forward. The first one you just referred to. It is hard to argue that you know the amount that is necessary when you don't know what the prior amounts that you've put in have done to the economy. How do the, de the Democrats in the White House deal with that? That you, you don't know what the last stimulus did and where the economy will be in four, five, six months. How can you put a price tag on it now? Yeah, that is a really difficult question for them to needle for them to thread. But what they are arguing is that they are in the process of rebuilding, and there's a way to to rebuild that brings the country back into a place where they want the country to go. Which is why he has laid out this expansive 2.25 trillion dollar infrastructure proposal that has beyond things beyond just road, road bridges and broadband, but other measures as well. And in addition to that, 1.8 trillion dollar package that includes money for to try to lower healthcare premiums for individuals to try to enhance jobless benefits, to, to make the child tax credit, to extend that for an additional five years, things that could help the social safety net of, of people and try to uh, not get back into the same situation that we have seen in this economic crisis over the last couple of years. So the real challenge for the administration is selling their party on the vision that the president laid out last night, because it's beyond just the relief that was pumped into the economy to get out of this crisis, but how to rebuild for the next five to 10 years going forward. And that's the challenge they have to get Democrats like Joe Manchin on board, who are not quite sure if that's the way to go. Here's the dangerous game. His best argument to Manchin and the others is time. We got to get big things done or we're going to get crushed in the midterms. But I think the only way he gets them on board is something that takes time. Put it in committee. Yeah. Put it on the floor, have the amendments, have Schumer do the votes, show that the Republicans are recalcitrant. Then you have the high ground to go reconciliation. But that takes time. Manu yeah. Raju, thank you. Appreciate you, pal. Thank you Thanks. very much. Thanks, Chris. All right. So that's on the policy side. That's politics with a small P. What about with a big P in the state of play for the Democrats? Is it just about the policy, talking the talk, walking the walk? How about the talk? A real big brain of Democrats' greatness, James Carville. He says talking the talk is a problem. Woke culture is a problem. And the messaging whiz behind it's the economy, stupid, says something now is obvious and stupid. What is it? Next. Next. 
walk the walk. That's what Biden's trying to do, literally, going around the country and saying to you, I've got a plan. Let's get this done before the midterm so you can see the big things that I did, big price tags, big difference, even if it means forcing it through by reconciliation. Okay, that matters. But what about talking the talk? This is politics, after all. Messaging matters. Do you remember the man who came up with, it's the economy, stupid, during Bill Clinton, about keeping it obvious to where people are. Speak to them in obvious terms. Relate, find them where they are. Well, now, the question is, is all of that anathema to wokeness and the opposite in what we're seeing from the Democratic Party right now? Let's bring in James Carlville, author of many of the good ideas of the Clinton administration, messaging among the top of them. So, James, it'll be a good test of your political currency to see how you deal with the beating coming your way for messing with wokeness. (laughs) Well, thank you for the kind words, Chris. Uh, Unfortunately, the only thing I'm going to get canceled by is the actuarial tables. Uh, (laughs) You know, I, I think there's an issue in our messaging, and I think that I don't want to help rewrite dictionaries. I want to help rewrite laws. And the way that we help President Biden do that is by talking about things that are relevant to people in a way that they can understand it in a clear, distinct, and certain voice. And I I believe that. And I'm at a place in life where I can say it while other people are terrified to say it. Why are they terrified to say it? I, I, I don't know. That they, it, it, it brings up too much trouble. It, they watch people that get fired for the most trivial offenses or retweeting a piece of academic research or, or, or something like that. And I, I don't know how many hundreds of people have said, James, it's just, I just can't do it. It's just not worth uh, the grief I'm going to take. And I sat there and I had a fortunate life in politics. And if I just don't say something about this, I, I'd never forgive myself. Why do you think it'll hurt the Democrats if they stay the way they are? Because we're talking about something that, that, that doesn't, it's not, it didn't come in the intersection of people's lives. It's just faculty lounge jargon. And, and it, it, it's counterproductive. It, 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 it gives the uh, aura of cosmopolitan smugness to the rest of the country. That somehow or another, we think we're smarter and better than, than other people and we're going to lecture them. Where we are, people agree with us on the issues. They like the, the, our tax plans and they like to believe in, they think climate is an issue. They think that racial inequality and inequality, as I do, is a terrible issue in American politics. But the way that you solve that is through power. You don't solve it in the faculty lounge. You don't solve it by, by having arguments back and forth. You go out and you win elections. And that's what I'm trying to help my party do and my president do. So they'll say, so you say, all right, so Biden got the most votes ever, but Trump got the second most ever, and that should have never happened. And the proof that you didn't get it done is the slim majority in the House and no majority in the Senate. Fair point? Well, I, I haven't talked to a lot of House members and senators, and they almost to a person think that defund the police and the, the open borders talk was, was terribly harmful. You don't have to do anything. Look at Star County. Look at those counties down in the Rio Grande Valley. Look, look at Miami-Dade to, to see the effect that all of this is having electorally. Look, we beat a world-class buffoon. I mean, I mean world-class historical buffoon. And we lost House seats at the time, and we came within 42,000 votes of not winning the presidency. That we got to learn to talk to people better and clearer and more distinctly. 
about things that are relevant to their lives. And that, that's what I'm trying to do. And I, I don't, like I say, this whole thing is, is about language. And I, I think the best language is the most direct, simple language of, of people. And that's what I think we need to engage in. So the reverb is this. No, James, we're not going to talk the language of the ignorant and the bigoted. Uh, it is time that you speak about people who are diverse with respect for their diversity. And that really being woke is about being decent. And it's not okay to be disrespectful and to talk down to people. And just because you're scared that you're white because you're believing some BS that somebody's selling you. We have rules about how we want people treated. And we can enforce them now because we're not in the shadow of just a white majority anymore. This is a diverse country. What do you say? Well, I would say this, that somewhere around 68 or probably 69 percent of the people that are going to vote in the next election is going to be white. So I think it's utterly stupid to uh, to attack 70 percent of the country when you're trying to get a majority. And by the way, in order to win a House majority, we have to probably win after redistricting. We get clobbered because we didn't pick up any state legislative seats. Right, and, and just normal sorting, we probably got to win by six or seven points. So the, my, our urban strategists say, let's start out by attacking all white people. I, I don't think you can get any dumber than that. I really don't. But they, well, first of all, let, don't think I'm ignorant, by the way. <laughs> well, first of all, I might you, be. I might not be the sharpest no. knife in the drawer, but I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think you are either. Listen, you are here uh, because of what you know and what you've proven campaign after campaign. Uh, and you better be smarter than me, James. I mean, that's like, you know, that's about as low a bar as we can get on this show. If you're, if you're not smarter than me, literally, you should never be on anywhere again. But here's the point. They'll say this. They'll say this. Uh, yeah, the numbers are changing in the country. And the Democratic Party and the future of this country is in the diversity. And the right is playing to white fright. And that is a losing game over the long term. And we are betting on the long term of diversity. And we believe in the gentility of our purpose. We're not out to hurt the right. We're out to not be hurt anymore by the right. Okay, if you if you if you want to get throw everything over the fence to win the election of twenty forty two, then go ahead. I'm I'm seven. I'm gonna be seventy seven in October. All right, and I I know how much a difference if 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 these proposals that President Biden. I know it that if they they enacted a you know. Most of it is enacted. I think it's going to make people's lives infinitely better. I think he needs to have a Democratic Congress for the last two years of his presidency. I'm not here to argue with you about 2042. And I, by the way, the Democratic Party is, is a real party of diversity. You look at what we did in Georgia, one of the most beautiful elections I've been, ever been associated with. So I, 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 they say that. And the other thing I would point to you, Chris, is this. 18% of the United States elects 52 senators. Let me repeat that. 18% of the United States elects 52 senators. The, the Senate and the Constitution gives whites, and particularly rural whites, a, a, a larger say in the electorate than they actually represent. I, I don't like it. I wish we could change it. I, I would love to. But I don't see any chance of that happening you know, over the immediate well, horizon. That's, that's the holder effort and all those fights on redistricting. We'll see how that goes, uh, especially if they don't get S1, uh, HR1 passed. I'm, I'm so far, S1, I'm the most for S1 than any human being on the face of this earth. All right. That has nothing to do with the faculty lounge. I, I, I am I'm for 
you know, addressing inequality through taxes and social spending and programs and everything else. I believe in a, a, a really aggressive way to tackle climate. I think what they're doing over there, they're starting to do, is, is very encouraging. I have the same goals as most of the people in the faculty lounge. But, but the way that you accomplish the goal is to acquire political power in the form of congressional seats, Senate seats, presidencies, governors, state legislatures. That's the way it's done. And it's not going to get done attacking 68% of the people who are going to vote in a national election. It just doesn't make any sense. James Carville, I respect you talking about this, and I really appreciate you speaking about it here. I look forward to being in touch. Thank you. I hope they don't cancel you, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like a cockroach. I'll be around. I'll be around. All right. There are new pandemic concerns. Listen, you know what this show is about. Um, People do the wrong thing. They go too far. There are going to be consequences. But here we talk. We talk about things we like. We talk about things we don't like. And that's how we understand ourselves. And that's what we need. I got some new poll numbers out there about where we are. And you're going to want to hear them next. Uh, First, we are just getting a handle on new reporting about the case against an investigation into Congressman Matt Gates that could change the state of play. We're going to have that uh, coming up. But right now, I have some perspective for you that you need about vaccinations. And it goes to my point that the CDC guidelines really should have shown people who are hesitant to get this vaccine, not just the science, okay, but the practicality. If we can get to this number, this is what life looks like. And then if we can get to this number, this is what, okay. And here's why. Look, the way the rate is going right now, Biden's going to live up to his promise. You have enough vaccine for every adult in the United States by the end of May. He kept his word. All right. But here's the question. What about the people who don't want to take that vaccine? More than half of American adults have now received at least one shot. But we are already seeing demand drop. Supply is soon expected to outstrip demand doesn't bode well for getting where we need to be, which is where 70 to 80 percent. Okay, polls show 58 percent of American adults who have not gotten the shot yet don't want one. Politics? Yeah, probably. The majority of those people are who remain skeptical are Republicans. Now, ironically, the head of their party, got it himself. In fact, he said that the vaccine was the best thing that's ever happened. We've shown you the science. You've heard the nation's top doctor encourage you to take the vaccine and why. And the dropping cases that we're seeing, even with the variants on the march, is more proof. But if that's not enough to convince the vaccine hesitant, let me turn your attention to India, okay? Yeah, they may be far away, but the reality is what we just missed here. This is them burning bodies. Okay. It is the worst COVID outbreak in the world. New cases are rising to record levels each day. You're familiar with that story, but not this kind of consequence. Families are counting their dead. Overwhelming wave of death. It is literally a makeshift cremation. That's what they have to do. Hospitals are at their breaking point everywhere. No beds, no oxygen. They're having oxygen depots on the side of the road. The most basic human need is now a scarce commodity, oxygen. Why? Because you have incredibly dense population and vaccinations are key to stopping the spread, but you don't have the supply. And also they have a huge class struggle there. All right. 
It is so bad that the Biden administration and other countries are sending over raw vaccine supplies and oxygen machines to help. All right. And we got to keep our eye on it because it could boomerang back. This situation is not over and we are going to be measured by how we help others as well. So that's some perspective. Now, as I said, there are new developments in the Matt Gates investigation. There's a reported confession letter that has incriminating or insinuating information about Gates. And it comes from someone who could know what they're talking about. What is the reporting? What could it mean? What are the questions? Next. There is new reporting from the Daily Beast about the investigation into Congressman Matt Gates. Here's the reporting that his friend and wingman wrote a, in quotes, confession letter saying both he and the congressman paid for sex with several women and a 17 year old girl. The letter was part of Joel Greenberg's bid, reportedly, to get a presidential pardon from Trump and sought the assistance with the letter from one Roger Stone. CNN has not seen the letter. I cannot confirm the details in the Daily Beast's story. Uh, We have reached out to Greenberg's attorney. He has no comment, cites attorney-client privilege. We just got this statement from Congressman Gates' PR group. Congressman Gates has never paid for sex, nor has he had sex with a 17-year-old as an adult. Politico has reported Mr. Greenberg's threats to make false accusations against others. And while the Daily Beast story contains a lot of confessions from Mr. Greenberg, it does not add anything of substance and certainly no evidence for the wild and false claims about Representative Gates. In fact, the story goes some way to showing how Representative Gates was long out of touch with Mr. Greenberg and had no interest in involving himself in Mr. Greenberg's affairs. Now, we have the reporter who helped break the news. Joining us now, Jose Paglieri. It's good to have you back on primetime. What do you make of the Gates' response to your reporting? Thank you, Chris. Um, Well, what I make of it is that, I mean, it addresses part of it, but it doesn't address the fact that this is the first time that we are seeing in explicit detail from his own wingman, what the congressman allegedly did. And let me tell you, this letter is pretty explicit. It states very clearly that Joel Greenberg got paid by Matt Gates to acquire young women for sex and that they had sex with a teen. Now, look, I've been on your program talking about Venmo transactions that we also acquired independently um, that show that Matt Gates was paying Joel Greenberg. There were insinuations there, right? Uh, instructions to hit up one of the girls and, and a love motel emoji. But this is the first time that we are seeing it word for word explained what exactly they did. And the thing that really jumps out at me at this damning letter is the idea that he goes, I did see the acts occur firsthand. This is going to be pivotal for prosecutors as they go after Matt Gates. If he is to be believed, let's just check some boxes. One, the letter Do you have the letter or did you hear about the letter? No, we have obtained the letter. We've gone through it. In fact, we actually asked a handwriting expert to go through this letter and compared it to samples of Joel Greenberg's handwriting in public records that he was forced to file when he was running for office. And we got a match. And so we know that Joel Greenberg wrote that letter. And do you know that it reached Roger Stone? So... 
the communications that we have indicate that uh, they were sent. Uh, there are pretty inexplicit detail. We know that this document was described. And so, yes, that does seem to be the case. But again, this letter is an extremely long and detailed confession letter, essentially, that goes into explicit detail about Matt Gates, their friendship and what they did together. Mm. Uh, Roger Stone uh, tells me uh, he doesn't buy this. He didn't help. He never took money from anybody. He doesn't recall any letter. And he never has heard of Greenberg implicating Gates. What do you make of that? Uh, I would strongly advise all of your viewers to check out the story that my partner on this story, Roger Sollenberger, and I have just published on The Daily Beast. It goes in explicit detail through all of that. We've got the receipts. We've got images. We've got conversations. So now the big question becomes, is Greenberg to be believed? Um, Whoever he was soliciting, whether it was Stone or anyone else, what is the chance that he was putting it out there about Gates to help himself, hoping that people would want to help cover for Mr. Gates Uh, you know, against the allegations in this letter. Now, that's what's fascinating. So part of our reporting was understanding the context of this letter. And this is where this is actually pretty uh, pretty pivotal. This letter wasn't written for prosecutors. This wasn't part of a deal for Joe Greenberg trying to get out of trouble through the prosecutors in their attempts to go after Matt Gates. This actually was written in an attempt to secure a pardon for himself. And so in describing what Matt Gates did, he wasn't really doing Matt Gates any favors. And he was actually putting himself in some significant harm in actually writing this down. But the fact is, this letter has existed for months. And there's a lot of detail in there that is sure to come up in any future trial. Hmm. And do you think it rests solely on the credibility of Greenberg? Or is there anything in the letter that can be independently corroborated? I mean, there are a lot of details in that letter, and it does mention the activities of the women that were in their circle. And so we know that prosecutors and investigators are going after so many of the young women and some of the women who actually were actively part of this group. That So there are other people there who witnessed this, who are also implicated. And let's talk, you know, we can talk about the person who was 17 years old at the time. You know, she's now of age and, you know, prosecutors can talk to her and use her as well. And so this isn't just about Joel Greenberg. I mean, there's value in this letter because it was written by him and comes from him, given the fact that he was Matt his friend and his wingman in all of this. But there are girls that were involved and they could provide testimony that backs a lot of this up. That is true. Jose Paglieri, thank you for providing pieces to the puzzle. Thank you for answering the questions about your reporting. And that's why you continue to get a platform on this show. Appreciate you. Thank you, Chris. All right. I have good news on the other side of this break. Arguably two good pieces of news. Um, But the best, Cuomo primetime family growing next. Good news. Miles Sebastian Morgan. That's the name of brand new son of Kisha Jarrett, the glue on the team, our business coordinator. She's been part of the program from day one. He was born last week, seven pounds, six ounces, younger brother to Amira, Aiden, and Evan, Miles and mom are doing well. We miss her, but she's doing the best job that there is. Look at that onesie. Cuomo primetime. Let's get after the babies. Our congratulations to Kisha and Ja. We are so happy you brought Miles into the family. This is great. It's good news, and it's good to have good news. More good news. Uh, Tomorrow night, I'm off. The show goes on. 
the show has grown to the point, thanks to you, where it stays on the schedule whether I'm here or not, and you will have an upgrade in the form of Michael Smirkanish. All right, time for the big show. CNN Tonight with the big star, D. Lemon, right now. That is definitely an upgrade. Oh, yeah. And anything would be an upgrade. True. <laughs> Why are you indoctrinating Kish's baby already? We don't want that. Why? Kish is a good woman. Her husband's a good man. It's if, a great family. What are you indoctrinating him with that Cuomo Prime time here, stuff Here's why. For? If we were to give that kid a CNN Tonight onesie, if one existed because nobody would make one, it is telling this kid that you cannot be great, that you must aspire for something less than greatness. By, by giving mm. the Cuomo Prime time onesie, the kid mm. knows anything is possible. Sky's the limit. No. That's right. Anything is possible. Look, we had we've had some flukes that <laughs> over the past four or five years. If you don't know make me I'm laugh, it makes my about, toupee move. So there's one. <laughs> yeah, you got that toupee cut a little short. Listen, though, all seriousness. Yes, sir. You just had uh, is it uh, Pagliari on Pagliari Pagliari. Uh, sorry. Daily Beast. Show. Sorry. Sorry. Yes. That is some that is some bombshell. That is some scoop that he got. And if this proves to be true. Trouble, trouble, trouble. 17. Well, mm. look, the, the age, remember, that's, uh, that is a strict liability crime, certainly under Florida law, and that is the trigger age for federal law. Uh, the, the problem there in being a defendant is even if you didn't know, even if you believe the age was different and in the age of majority, it doesn't always matter. So it's a letter that exists and they have it. So this isn't about what they were told. It's about what they have. The question is, is what is in the letter true? And that's where the work of the investigators has to come in. But if you've got to read this Daily Beast story because it it, it is uh, it's damning. Again, as I said, if true, because this is uh, their reporting, it's not CNN's reporting. But still, man, the stuff that uh, that they have alleged to uncover in here is certainly troubling uh, and could spell uh, something really bad for Matt Gates. I, I will say that... this to add to the speculation. Yes, what does it tell you about the state of mind of somebody who would mm-hmm. hand write a letter that puts all kinds of damning and incriminating information about him and somebody that he knows matters to the administration and then sends it to people that he doesn't even really know that well? Think about yeah. the state of mind of that person. Well, that is uh, a lot of entitlement and a lot of I don't know what I can't even qualify it I can't even classify it was it was risk is what it was and it speaks to desperation and need and when people need things and are desperate they can do a lot of things they can tell the truth they cannot tell the truth but this is a big move in the story and they can make a lot of mistakes I got to run because I got a lot of breaking news this Giuliani Gates a lot of things I love you D Lemon speak your truth too brother thank you Ah, come on I always do I said I talked to you about that onesie not good not good Thank you. See you later. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 
and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.